Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 18. We'll conclude the chapter tonight going to verse 3 of Second Chronicles 19. Second Chronicles chapter 18 to 19, verse 3. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 28. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of his chariots, a fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. As soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they says, it is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. For as soon as the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded." And the battle continued that day, and the king of Israel was propped up in his chariot, facing the Syrians until evening. Then at sunset, he died. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to king Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asherahs out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this record of ancient events recorded for our benefit. Cause us, Father, to grow wise, serving only Christ, promoting only the witness of his word in this dark world. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Peter Jones describes being present to observe a meeting of the Parliament of World Religions. He describes a liberal Presbyterian professor in his long black robe, a Buddhist priest in his orange one, a Catholic cardinal in his royal purple splendor, the high priestess of the goddess Isis in her white robe and pointed headdress, as they all stood together in celebration of their spiritual unity. And while Joan stood by, they held hands and danced around the room to the sound of a Native American Indian shaman's drum. Now the rationale for ecumenical gatherings like that, even with those who espouse opposite religious views, is the importance of unity and mutual understanding. But underlying it all is the assumption that truth is relative. They each assume that that each representative holds a portion of truth, but that none of them possesses what Francis Schaeffer described as true truth. None of them really possess the truth, so they were seeking to pool what they did know among one another. Now the one religion, such a gathering, inevitably leaves out Therefore, is biblically faithful Christianity. Jesus demanded an absolute 
an absolutely exclusive relationship toward all other claims of salvation. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. And therefore, while a Native American Indian shaman, a Buddhist priest, even an unbelieving Presbyterian scholar may justify a mutual embrace of conflicting religious views, the Christian must stand alone with Jesus Christ and his gospel as it is taught in the Bible. Now, what is true for Christians today was equally true in Old Testament times. In fact, so determined was the Lord to keep his people separated from the idolatrous views and the practices that literally surrounded them was the Mosaic Covenant enforced a number of prohibitions. Prohibitions on intermarriage, against interdwelling, against intereating. They could not sit at a table with them. Why did God do that? Well, he was securing his people away from false teaching and false religion for eternal life through true and saving faith. Now, one person who should have known all this was Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, reigning heir of the house of David. And earlier in the chapter, we saw that he foolishly journeyed to the court of wicked King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel, presumably out of a desire uh, to see the 12 tribes join together, uh, if not in spirit, well, at least militarily, economically, sentimentally. What he discovered there was appalling unbelief through the ravings of false prophets. Only one true prophet stood alone there, Micaiah the son of Imlah. And so while the troop of false prophets were trumpeting the sure success of all of Ahab's military adventures, only Micaiah spoke the truth. He foretold Ahab's death in the coming battle. In fact, Micaiah's parting words before he was carried off to be put back in his cell, foretold doom. He cried, if you return, if you return in peace, O Ahab, the Lord has not spoken by me, Second Chronicles 18.27. Now what is doubly surprising is not only that Jehoshaphat was there in the first place and that he stayed, but that even after hearing this prophecy from a man he knew was a true servant of God, Our passage tonight begins with these words, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. What would transpire on that battlefield would show that there actually is the greatest difference between true and false religion. One of them grants salvation, the other destruction. The implication for Jehoshaphat would be a rebuke from yet another prophet. He would be told at the end, Should you... Help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord. Second Chronicles 19, verse 2. Well, whenever God's people make common cause with unbelievers, they can expect to be bound up in corrupt and deceitful practices, the ways of the world. And even by today's standards, the battle plan of Ahab, king of Israel, takes the cake. It certainly stands out. He has the gall to share his ideas with Jehoshaphat. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes, verse 29. Andrew Stewart rightly describes this as the danger to which believers expose themselves when they enter into a close partnership with unbelievers. This may happen when a young person mixes with the wrong company or when a Christian chooses as his best friends those who do not love the Lord. 
It especially happens when a believer marries an unbeliever. Now, it's hard to understand how Jehoshaphat went along with this decision to fight alongside an ally like this. Again, at first having heard the prophecy of Micaiah, but then learning of this battle plan. I think probably his tender conscience felt he'd made a promise. He therefore should keep it. Uh, maybe it's just the momentum of his foolish naivete swept him forward into this danger. But no amount of naivete could have kept Jehoshaphat from realizing that what this was about was that Ahab was to be protected from danger because Jehoshaphat was going to be exposed to it. Now, we may again speculate on reasons why he agreed to this lopsided arrangement. I think his sense of duty kept him from disguising himself the way Ahab did. He was leading the army of Judah. He needed to do so as their king. Perhaps also his right sense of the dignity of his office, king in the house of David, compelled him to face the enemy in the regalia of such a king. In any case, it quickly became clear just how much danger he had submitted himself to. Look at verse 29. Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. Now that's how ancient wars often work, by the way. A, a clash of kings. I think of the Battle of Isis in 333 BC when Alexander the Great led his Macedonian force against a vastly numerically superior army led by the Persian emperor Darius III. And so what Alexander did was he took his companion cavalry. He had a chess piece for which the other side did not have the chess piece. I take some delight in that it was the heavy cavalry. And he used them, leading them himself, and he broke through the center of the Persian line, straight where the standard of the emperor ran. He raced towards the uh, Persian emperor, cast him to flight, and in that way, the entire massive armies, one of the greatest, largest armies ever recorded in the ancient world, simply melted away. Well, the king of Syria had a similar idea in mind. Only it would be Judah's king Jehoshaphat who bore the target on his chest rather than the intended Ahab of Israel. Well, the battle lines crashed and the archers began loosening their arrows from chariots, we're told. And all of this firepower is being directed against poor Jehoshaphat. Look at verse 31. As soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. Now, we sympathize with his poor plight, but we have to admit it was all his own fault for this mistaken alliance with an ungodly ally. When Christians, associates, and it's true, what happens to Jehoshaphat often happens to us. He's mistaken for the ungodly. I wonder when we realize it, if we accommodate ourselves to ungodly fellowship and we start walking in the ways of the ungodly, we too will be mistaken for the servants of the world and unbelief. And yet what happened next shows the reason why Christians must maintain the exclusivity of our faith. Here's the question. Does it matter that we practice only the biblical gospel, that we only teach the true doctrines of the New Testament? Why can't we interact and share ideas with other religions? Well, two events occur here that remind us that it's vitally important that we are believing the true, the one and true gospel. First, when the godly king realized his danger, he prayed to the Lord. Verse 31, and Jehoshaphat cried out. You see, it's the believer 
who knows the power and love and faithfulness of God and therefore responds to the trials of life with prayer. Do you realize that that is not the practice of the world? And when they do it, it is usually the kind of hypocritical show of the world parliament of religion. But even today, when sudden danger befalls the ungodly, prayer is virtually the last thing they seek to do. Unbelieving kings do not pray. No, they seek the false comfort of false prophets. They use ungodly stratagems to save their necks. Ahab provides a great example here. Facing this deadly battle, we don't see him beseeching the Lord's protection through prayer. No, it's a scheme. It's a clever deception that exposes his ally, his erstwhile friend, to danger. And so it's important. One benefit of true religion is that it leads to prayer. But secondly, it leads to prayer that is actually answered because there actually is God at the other end. He receives, he responds with help to save. Uh, this is the kind of prayer we might classify as an arrow prayer. Christians do this, it's perfectly valid. He's suddenly afraid and he cries out to God. That's all we're told. I suppose you've done that. I certainly have. And God heard that prayer and he delivered him. Now the observable result was that the Syrian chariot captain saw that it was not the king of Israel. We don't know how they saw it. Battle then was pretty close. Maybe they they fought Ahab before. They probably recognized that's not Ahab. Um, And so they turned back from pursuing him, verse 32. But the true explanation is given in God's answer to his servant's prayer. The Lord helped him. God drew them away from him, verse 31. Now, Jehoshaphat's remarkable deliverance from the danger into which he had so foolishly placed himself shows that it makes a big difference whether you have a saving relationship with the one true God through the only gospel that he offers. Jehoshaphat's ancestor, David, spoke of this in the lines of Psalm 34. I sought the Lord, in the Hebrew that would be Yahweh, the name of the one true God who's revealed to his covenant people in Scripture. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Psalm 34, 4-7. to I'm reminded of a memorable evangelistic conversation I had some years ago with a group of Muslim women in a village outside Kampala, Uganda. And the women complained to me that they had been praying to God. They prayed for food. They were starving. It was obvious that they had children were malnourished. They prayed for safety. They prayed for health for their children. And they prayed and prayed and God did nothing. He did not answer. Nothing happened. And so I asked them, what is the name of the God to whom you are praying? They said to me, we pray to Allah. It was my privilege to say to them, that is your problem because Allah is no God. But if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you'll confess your sins and be reconciled to God by the blood of his cross, then God, his Father, will hear your prayers from heaven and he will help you. Now, I know what you're thinking. I was clear to point out that doesn't mean it's all hunky-dory, particularly in Africa today. You always have to be on guard against the prosperity gospel. It's a scourge of the devil. So this is not to say nothing bad will ever happen to you. No trials will ever come. We don't believe it. The Bible doesn't teach it. But he answers prayer. When we call, he helps. He hears. He's real. He's faithful. 
The true God sends the grace of his Holy Spirit to strengthen our hearts. James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So the believer in Christ discovers through prayer the truth that David goes on to say in Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Well, Jehoshaphat's survival of this battle, betrayed as he was by his ally Ahab, reminds us that danger only touches a child of God when the Lord permits it. Well, the Lord does permit it. None of us are destined to live forever on this earth. There's an appointed end to our lives, but that end will not come until the end that God has appointed occurs. Danger will not touch us unless the God who loves us permits it and oversees it. Isaiah 54, 17 promises, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Yes, the Lord permits many trials, often dire trials, for the strengthening of our faith and other reasons. Often it's a platform for more effective witness. Nonetheless, our eternal destiny is safely secured in his sovereign hands. You see, for this reason, Jehoshaphat, of all people, should have been keen to preserve the true religion, the purity of true religion as revealed in God's word, rather than this compromise with idolatrous Ahab. Only the believer in Jesus Christ possesses God's promise of eternal life. Those who know and trust the biblical gospel receive its promise. Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. See, it's for this reason, as J.A. Thompson writes, that even in a battle that Jehoshaphat should not have been fighting, the Lord was his helper. True religion, the biblical gospel, oh, it matters, it matters greatly. The Lord was his helper. Now, if the rescue of godly Jehoshaphat displays the divine protection of a child of God, the fate of wicked Ahab shows that no amount of deception can preserve the ungodly from the timely judgment of the Lord. We say that again. While God protects his children, his people of true biblical faith, there is no amount of deception which the ungodly can employ that will preserve them from the timely judgment of God. Well, Ahab's behavior in this battle tells us so much, not only about the state of his own mind, but about the mentality of all those who do not know salvation through Jesus Christ. After all, what would prompt a king? And by the way, he was, we kind of think of Ahab, because of the Bible's presentation, as kind of a clown. He was an imperial power. He had previously won the great battle of his generation. The reason the Assyrian Empire falls off the map is a victory that he was one of the principal commanders into. This is a, I won't say a Napoleon, but maybe a Wellington. This is a man of prodigious military skill. And here he is skulking. Why is he skulking in midst of the ranks of his army? Why is he disguising himself and hiding from his enemy? It seems the answer is he can't shake off the word of God. 
He can't cast off the prophecy that came to him from the lips of faithful Micaiah. The prophet had foreseen his defeat. Just back in verse 16, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each home return home to his home in peace. That was a prophecy of his death and defeat and for all of his bravado in abusing poor Micaiah, he could not get these words out of his mind. Well, Ahab's actions in this battle, you, you need to see, were intended not merely to deceive Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. Oh, mainly, he was seeking to deceive and outmaneuver God. In a game that proved more dangerous than he imagined, he, he thought that like everybody else, God could be outwitted by clever stratagems uh, that he'd used so many times before. And in so doing, Ahab follows in a long train of sinners seeking to disguise themselves, to disguise their sin, to disguise their fallen identity from God. And it's a line of sinners that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Our first parents were, were created in righteousness. They were naked and not ashamed at the end of Genesis 2. But Genesis 3 sees them transgressing God's command. They, 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 they fell in their natures. They become, became not only guilty, but corrupted in their nature. And they immediately saw the disguise of false righteousness. Genesis 3, 7, the first verse after the fall, then the eyes of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, sinners today imitate Ahab by seeking to disguise their sin with coverings of various kinds. Some perform charitable works designed to distract God from their actual sin, that which is in them. Others give large sums of money. They think that they get the approval of man, their name on a building, a public acclaim by the giving of money. Well, then God, God's approval will follow. By the way, it's often religious leaders who, who put their names on these buildings and give them this acclaim, to helping to deceive them about their true state with God. I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, a false teacher named Jim Baker. It was famous, not that some of you remember, some don't, but a couple of decades ago, he had his Christian empire, and, and just like Peter said in Second Peter, we've been studying it, he was deceiving people for money and sex. There it was, the usual combination. But I remember seeing an interview of his poor wife, the famous Tammy Faye Baker. What was Tammy Faye Baker known for? Her excessive makeup. It was, it was, it was, she was mocked. Did she know she was being mocked? It was caked on in an absurd way, this makeup on her face. I remember at the time seeing an interview with Tammy Faye, and they asked her rather politely, what's the deal with all the makeup? And she spoke about her relationship with her husband. She says, Jimmy has never seen me as I really am, only with my makeup on. Isn't that the instinct of our sin before the world? under a disguise of one kind or another. You see, these disguises reveal a deep-seated insecurity that is accurate. It's because we actually are sinful. We don't want to be known as we are, so we hide our thoughts and desires under cloaks of deception. You see, in this, it's, it's in this cause that false religion gains popularity. What better way to hide yourself from God than elaborate rituals, devout spiritual practices, together with the pageantry of man-made righteousness. 
Well, the problem with our attempts to disguise our sin before God, seeking to evade his promised judgment, is illustrated by the fate of Ahab in this battle with the king of Syria. We're told the chariot archers of Ben-Hadad, they were searching right and left for Israel's king. They could not find him, but God knew exactly where he was all the time. And his shaft of judgment flew with deadly accuracy. Look at verse 33. In the midst of the battle, a certain man, some, the randomness humanly is being emphasized here, a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel. The pictures of some negligent soldier who needs to get rid of some arrows to show that he actually participated. Doesn't have a target of no, so he just pulls it back and lets it go. That's what's being said here. But it was God who aimed that shaft and sent it straight into the heart of the condemned king. We're told the arrow struck between the scale armor and the breastplate. There's a narrow little space in his heavy armor that made his chest vulnerable. Ian Proven comments, the Lord's deception of Ahab has succeeded. Ahab's intended deception of the Lord has failed. Well, according to the Bible, I hope you know, there is always a crevice in even the most iron-plated armor into which the arrow of God's judgment can fly. The reason for this is before the piercing gaze of the Almighty, sinners are without a disguise. There is no real disguise. It is we who are being deceived. And one place we discover this is when the word of God is being preached. This is why people don't want to hear the word of God being preached. You think of Hebrews 4 verse 12. It speaks about the penetrating power of Scripture. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, if God's word undresses and disguises a false righteousness that sinful men and women seek to wear, how much more will that all be true on the day of judgment? Hebrews 9.27 states the stark fact, it is appointed for man to die, and after that comes judgment. That verse is unfathomably true until the Lord Jesus returns. And where will the fig leaves of pretended good works be on that day when all humanity stands exposed before the Lord on his throne of judgment? You see, the only escape from a judgment like that of Ahab's arrow, a judgment that flies by God's command with unerring accuracy, is the forgiveness that in his grace God himself provides in the sacrifice of his son. Here's the message, Paul. Here's the true gospel. Here's the one salvation apart from which all others must be rejected. Romans 3, 23 to 25. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we may be justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus received through faith. All have sinned, but they are justified in Christ through faith by the redemption of his blood. 
You see, here's the good news that is better than the vain disguise that Ahab wore in battle with God's justice. Peter writes that sinners are redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you will confess your sin, if you will seek mercy from the God who knows your sin, if you will seek it at the cross where his son Jesus died for sinners who believe, well, you won't need a disguise amidst all the dangers of life and eternity. Jesus promises, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. John five twenty four. You see, it was through faith in the Lord that Jehoshaphat was spared despite his foolish actions. In contrast, Ahab's unbelieving destruction displays that there is no disguise that will work. No disguise will hide the ungodly from the judgment of God when his shaft has been sent. Well, this embarrassing episode for Jehoshaphat, stretching back all the way to the beginning of the chapter, reveals that it was time for Judah's king to grow up. What if it's time for us to grow up as well? And for this reason, when he returned safe to Judah, it wasn't to a parade. There's none that we read of. There's no accolade. But rather, rather scornful words from an elderly prophet. Verses 1 to 2 of chapter 19. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Now, this is the lesson to the story. Let's never forget that these accounts are being written by the chronicler, first for his generation, of those Jews coming back from Babylon to a restored but dilapidated Jerusalem. It's only through them that it comes to us. And we remember here that Jehu is the same prophet who had rebuked Jehoshaphat's father Asa, the same person decades earlier, when he also had turned to foreign alliances instead of relying on the Lord. Apparently this is a problem for God's people then, I dare say now. Instead of faith, instead of truth, we compromise with the world. Yes, it's all around us. I think the edge to his words, and he's pretty edgy with Jehoshaphat, Reflect, he's frustrated. He had the same conversation with his father 20, 30 years earlier. He's having the same one today. But you see, remember the parliament of religions described by Peter Jones? Well, a believer like Jehoshaphat should know better than to join in such an assembly. We too should know better than to compromise the truth of God's word and false worldly alliances, religious ones worst of all. Um, Jehu knew, more importantly, that worldly advantages, much less sentimental expressions of unity, that Jehoshaphat sought were no price to pay. There was nothing to be gained in that respect by compromising true religion and biblical truth. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? It's actually the language of diplomacy. He's talking about common cause. And these are, they have abandoned God. And to abandon God, to have a false gospel, is to hate the Lord. Should you be helping them? I wonder what Hanani the seer would say to us today. 
Might he say, is there really a benefit from compromising the gospel in political alliances, or much less financial, material gains for your church or ministry? The Apostle Peter reminded us that the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for Christ's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is for that that the church exists, not to win battles in the culture. We're citizens of the culture, so we have a duty to the culture, but the church must remain true to the gospel of Jesus and the biblical practices. We exist for him, unto him, that he might be proclaimed and glorified in and through us. You see, as seen as we are in the grace of Jesus, we need to be mature enough to understand the New Testament mandate. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Now this, by the way, is the biblical doctrine of separation. Now, biblical separationism is often falsely practiced. In practice, what it often means, particularly in circles often near us, is that we will divide utterly from fellow Christians over increasingly trivial differences. We will not share our witness or our ministry because we disagree on matters that we ourselves accept are secondary. That is not the kind of separation that is spoken of here or is mandated in the Bible. It is fellowship with darkness, with false teaching, with those who deny the Bible in their teaching or their practice. Well, Jehu's rebuke included a declaration that God was going to chastise Jehoshaphat. Verse 2, because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. You know, we actually don't know what that wrath was. It's obviously not ultimate condemnation. It's a disciplinary punishment that we read about in Hebrews 12, 4 to 11. We're not told exactly what former took place, although some of the tough episodes that happen in the ensuing chapters might have something to do with it. Well, still, despite his sinful folly, making alliances with the enemies of God, actually fighting at their side with the wicked in battle, nonetheless, Jehoshaphat gained salvation because of his faith in the one true gospel. And this was reflected in his life. Look at verse 3. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asherah out of the land, and you have set... Here's the... Here's in Chronicles... Here's the chronicler definition of saving faith. You have set your heart to seek the Lord. You see, the heart that seeks after God is that which is saved. And he'd shown true faith by by coming to God in the truth of the gospel presented in his time and then by acting, preserving the gospel in his home. He'd done that. He'd gotten rid of the Ashtaroth, the the, the Baalim and the Asherah poles. They were leading the people astray. He'd been faithful. It mattered very much which gospel Judas King trusted. It mattered very much which religion he regarded as true. And his salvation displays that it is not a parliament of man's ideas regarding God that saves anyone. It is only God's revelation of salvation in his word that gives eternal life. Well, 2 Chronicles 18 presents a contrast from the very beginning between the false prophets of the world, on the one hand, and on the other, the true voice of God speaking in Holy Scripture. That's the contrast throughout this chapter. And it's the death of Ahab that crowns the victor, which is true. 
Which is the one that has the power? The false voice of the word, world or the true voice of God and his word? Ahab's death tells us. Go to verse 33 of chapter 18. After he was struck by the inerrant arrow of God, he told his chariot driver, turn around and carry me out of the battle for I'm wounded. And so he escaped from the battle. But he did not escape the justice of God. As the battle continued that day, he was propped up facing the enemy until evening. Then at sunset, he died. Now, the chronicler, and this is typical of this book, seems to assume that we know the backstory from 1 Kings. You can only fit so much on a scroll, so you can't put the whole backstory on there. He, know, he believes you've read Kings. And so you know the story of, second, of 1 Kings 22, 37 to 38, because the story is continued there. Turns out that when Ahab died, his chariot was, bought, was brought back, his body in it, to his capital city of Samaria, the place where Micaiah was waiting in prison, waiting for his prophet, prophecy to be vindicated. We read in 1 Kings 21, or 22, 37 to 38, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Well, that's not good. That's not a picture of salvation. That's contemptuous, eternal condemnation. But what's the word of the Lord that Kings is talking about? Why, it's an earlier prophecy spoken by Elijah the Tishbite, back when Ahab had stolen the plot of land. We heard a sermon on this recently from Naboth, that righteous man, and they slew righteous Naboth, and they left his body so that the blood would be licked up by the dogs. And here's what Elijah had foretold, 1 Kings 21, 19. Thus says the Lord, Ahab, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Well, didn't Ahab, well, you wonder, didn't Ahab tremble at such words? Threats from the very mouth of God? Well, whether he did or not, the word of God's judgment came true. It struck him, it struck him down in the battle. It humiliated him in his defeat. Here's proof of what Dale Ralph Davis calls the inerrancy of God's word. It always hits its target. The word of judgment inerrantly strikes its victim. Well, I wonder if you realize the same inerrancy of God's word when, it, when that judgment applies to the warnings that the Bible gives to you. Jesus says on the day he returns, he will sit on his glorious throne, Matthew 25, 31. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and they will be separated into two groups, those who believed in his gospel, the sheep, and those who were saved, and those who rejected his gospel, perhaps those who believed all truth was relative. We'll just share our own ideas of truth, and we'll create our own religious views. And they're the goats, and they're consigned to perish Addressing the ungodly who, who, like Ahab, had sought to disguise their sin before the searching gaze of God, Jesus will say these words, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He informs us that these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Matthew twenty-five, forty-one and 46. Well, I mentioned that man's attempt to cover up, to disguise our sin, and goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But we learn something from that very scene, that our eternal destiny actually does depend 
on the clothing as sinners that we wear. For though they covered themselves with fig leaves, God came and gave them better clothing. He gave them a picturing of the covering that God provides to us that we would not stand before him condemned in our guilt. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. Now this was, I hope you know, a picture of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ for those who repent and believe. God, they needed to be covered. That instinct was actually right. They needed the covering that God provides. And God covered them with skins of innocent animals who were sacrificed in their place. It was a picture of the doctrine we call penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus, the Lamb of God, paid the penalty of our sins, being the substitute by his death, making atonement for our sin. Do you recognize that that is an offer of your own and only salvation? It was Jesus who died that we would be cleansed of our sins by his atoning blood. And God draped around those sinful first parents of ours, these righteous garments. The Bible depicts Christians being clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We call that the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's the righteousness that he earned, that he fulfilled, and it's placed around us as a covering before God. You see why Jesus answered the clamor of the parliament of world religion saying, I alone am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. My friends, if you will put away the vain disguise, if you will put on instead the righteousness that God provides by his Son to those who believe his word, only then will the word of judgment be turned away from you. Only then will the arrow, the shaft of God's bow, fly not to you, but to Jesus on the cross. Only through faith in the Savior God has sent will the word of condemnation give way to the peace that God offers you in his Son. Romans 5 verse 1 speaks it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for the vivid way you speak to us and you picture us in the temptations that we feel as sinners before you. Help us to be wise. Help us to be mature as we grow up together with Jehoshaphat. That we would, we would not subordinate the truth of your world, word to worldly goods of any kind. But we would, we would subordinate worldly goods to the truth of your word. Only your gospel gives life. Only your son declared from scripture gives salvation. And so, Father, we thank you that uh, we're certainly not wiser than Jehoshaphat. In how many ways you have saved us. We know it was all for your son. May he be lifted up. May he be exalted in our lives and in our witness. And would we learn that Christ alone is the one who saves. He is the way. He is the truth. Oh, Lord, we thank you that he really is the life. We pray in his name. Amen.